Welcome to episode 22 of Once Upon a Lifetime. In our last episode, we left Andrew having just sold Carnegie Steel to J.P. Morgan. That has left him the richest man in the world with over $300 billion. He now takes on a second career just in order to give away the money, which he wants to give away in a responsible and thoughtful manner. So now he, here he is. He owns no business. Oh, gosh. He's not a businessman anymore. <laughs> this is a seriously delayed midlife crisis, I feel right, like. Or right. maybe not midlife. It, it's really that, um, well, I guess it's a retirement crisis, which I think a lot of people go through. Right, right. It's like empty nest. It was the way I was thinking about it as a mom. Kind of like, oh, it's an empty nest syndrome situation. He like, gets how? really melancholy. <laughs> yes. He gets really super nostalgic and starts waxing eloquent about, you oh. know, the good old days with his partners. And just imagine him with his morning paper, like just reading what all of his friends are doing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh, he dear. writes his partner's this last letter as he's about to sail for Scotland that summer. He says, we are no longer one family. We are all changed in our relations to each other, all saddened and owe the difference to me. Aww. It really, you well, know, this really was a family to him. I mean, he had family back in Scotland, but apart from Louise, I can just see the strong bond that he had with his associates. And he really felt that it was a family, which is why, he was so hurt if they ever yes. showed any betrayal or when they were even just very formal. Like Frick was so formal with him and professional. Right. And Andrew kind of, it didn't compute to right, Andrew. Like, right. well, why are we not BFFs? I don't understand. Don't we work together? Well, he really started out in business with his brother, too. Mm -hmm. And his good friends, those the little club right. of the pals, you know, the yes, debate yes. club friends. So now he doesn't have his little daily schedule. He's not going to any office. He's not... You know, he must still be following the market, but not not officially. What What is he going to be doing? How is he going about his day giving away his money? What does that look like? Yeah, he he kind of struggles a little bit with it. And then he basically gets down to business again. It, but the business is now giving money away. So he goes back to that schedule. Well, <laughs> he gets to England um, and pretty much immediately, these begging letters start flowing in. People just start sending him letters. So he is an enormous amount of correspondence. Now he really is Santa Claus. He, he looks like him. <laughs> right, and now right. he is him. Yes. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So he has to really immediately, you know, he gets a secretary, same secretary he's had forever. And they start... His secretary comes up with a system for how to deal with these letters. Right. He has certain kind of intake forms that people need to fill out to explain what they need. And oh. um, so they they get kind of serious about it right away. The, the other big thing he gets sold on pretty early on in the giving portion of his life is the importance of the Scottish universities. They don't have the same kind of endowments that the big American universities have or that Oxford and Cambridge have in England. Right, like Harvard and Yale didn't really they don't need, they don't need help. money. No, mm -mm, they don't need money in Cambridge and in Oxford don't need money and so but Scottish university education is expensive and the 
universities are and you can poor. This is an opportunity he would have loved to have had had he been able to stay in Scotland. You know, as as a young man, that's it's what he would have wanted for himself. Absolutely. So he decides he's going to pay partial tuition for students who need it. It's a financial aid grant as opposed to a merit-based grant. It's a need-based grant is how we think of it now. But this was just not done back then. This was not a thing the way it is now. We have lots of grants and scholarships, but especially in Scotland, it was not really a done thing. Within 10 years of that gift, it was paying the full tuition of half the students at St. Andrews, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, and Glasgow. That's unbelievable. It is. It just revolutionized Scottish well, it, higher it education. It kind of changes the educational landscape of that whole country, that they're going to be able to go out into the market and compete and just have that edge. You know, he was able to do it without an education, but how much easier would it be for these, yeah. these and young students? I, I think it's so funny. There's all of this upheaval about it because people felt as if now that these poor students... Right, the poor is getting into our education. Yeah, they're system. pauperizing our right. the higher education. You're right, because classism is a major thing in Europe. Yeah, so he kind of struck a blow at that, that's for sure. Well, and that was always was, something he was against. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, as much as he likes to be, you know, the feudal lord, he, he really has this thing against monarchy and class systems and things yeah, like that. Yeah, So he's, he's there that first summer. He's got this visitor... Frederick Hollis comes, you know, he's got right dozens of visitors. But one of them says, I thought this was an interesting quote. He said, after that first summer, he goes, I found my visit to him extremely interesting from a psychological point of view for the specimen of the genus Homo, who not only has 250 millions to give away, but who has been uncautious enough to say so is very rare. And hence, the observation is particularly interesting. So it's just true. I mean, first of all, he's already known as the richest man in the world. Secondly, he said he's going to give it all away. Can you imagine? Right. At this point, he honestly, Mr. Butterfly Social everywhere, wants to talk to everybody, loves everyone. He starts getting afraid. Carnegie gets afraid of conversations because so many people are asking him for money all the time. Well, I imagine it's everyone from, you know, a, a single mother writing to... A, a businessman who's struggling and wants to float his next idea. Like yes. ev- everybody. Yeah. The, the first, whole, all of society. The first letter sent to him after he sold the company was Sam Clemens, who's Mark Twain. Yes. Pen name Mark Twain. Well, they were very good friends and very close correspondents. Well, Andrew used whole to send lives. him casks of whiskey all of the time. Very, yeah, they were really close. Yes. And somehow, Mark Twain heard about the deal before most people had, and he sends him a letter and he goes, so I hear that you've become quite wealthy. You know, you know, congratulations, yada, yada, yada. And then he ends it with, if you could please send me money for a new hymn book, I need a new hymn book. And then he says, P.S., don't send the hymn book, just send the money. I want to pick it out myself. <laughs> And, you know, it's clearly just a joke, but it's a perfect illustration of Carnegie's entire life at that point. It really is. Like, even his friends are like, so, I would like to buy this plant over here. We could call it scientific research. What do you think? You know? Oh, gosh. Well, and and Clemens used to call him jokingly St. Andrew. Yes. And he called him St. Mark. (laughs) I love it. The big one, though, 
the charity that we all know about and associate with him is the libraries, at least for me. Yes. I have always associated libraries with him. So that was his first real massive system that he put in place. He knew he, he had already done a few libraries, maybe 30 in the whole world up to this point. He's, you know, and it's been sporadically over decades, like he'll donate a library here or there. Right. But one of the very first things he does is set up a new, the New York City branch library system. He built 63 libraries in New York immediately. Um, a little bit later, he does one in Philadelphia as well. And at that point, he's pretty good at it already. He's already done several hundreds of these. And he decides, you know, put all your eggs in one basket, watch the basket. This right. is his... It's a great big basket it's, for him. Yeah, he can just start doing this. So Bertram sets up this system where requesters have to fill an intake form that explains that the population of their city and other sources of books they might have in town, if it's private or public. And he would set the cost at about roughly $2 per person. So it just was very easy. You know, oh, this city wants a library. They don't have anything else. Okay. Right. And, and the government, like, they were not getting free libraries. Usually libraries in, in our little town, it was it was a volunteer library. That's you right. Know, 100 years ago, it was a few families in an empty house and people donated. They didn't have a county library system. No, and the government was coming around to providing community hospitals um, and community schools and, and being willing to tax taxpayers for those services. The government's kind of slowly coming around to that idea that we should be providing certain services. But libraries was definitely not on the list. And Andrew thought... You know, I have a lot of money, but I don't have enough money to provide libraries to the entire country, right. everywhere they need to or be. Or rather, he can pro provide more libraries to more people if the people also help with this, if they invest, if there's yeah. that buy-in always. Yep. And he wants he also wants the community to use the library once it's there. So, you know, if someone gives you something totally for free, you might not value it the same way you would if you put in even a little bit of your own effort or money. So he understands that psychologically. So he would actually call his offers of libraries to communities bribes. <laughs> He'd say, I will build this lovely building. You need to provide the books or the land for the uh. building. And then you need to be willing to tax your citizens a certain amount of money every year to upkeep the library, to buy new books, to replace old books. It wouldn't be too much, but just to prove that this was going to be a sustainable venture, that he wasn't just going to build this beautiful white elephant in this town if they were. It had to, to be sustained it. by the town and there had to be an ongoing buy in from the town. The reason our libraries in our country are so good is really because he convinced them that it was important. And then once they started using the libraries, they they it was e it's easy to see that they are important. Um, when we were in England last year for a year. And I had really counted on good libraries. We were moving for a year with just suitcases. So I could not bring very many books. It was just the weight limit and everything. And I thought, that's okay. Um, for a year, we'll just really rely on the libraries in England. We were going to Oxford. I'm like, for heaven's sake, the libraries must be amazing in Oxford, England. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> Not true. Well, the scholarly libraries must be oh, incredible. Sure, sure. But I needed libraries for like eighth graders right. and second graders. And that's lacking. Oh, my gosh. I oh, couldn't believe how surprising they have them. They exist. There are libraries, but they are they're just not a lot of books in them. And they're small. The bill, they, they're very run down anyway. 
even in our tiny town that we live in in America, we have a a nice library with lots of nice sun and we have plenty. You can get almost any book if you order it. You know, you can order it into sure, our branch. Sure. It's it's so different. Our tiny little branch library here is nicer than the big brand new branch they had built in Oxford while I was there. That's incredible. I feel very personally indebted to him because I just experienced kind of... He did build libraries in England, too, by the way. But in terms of the government support of the libraries, they did Mm. not buy in in the same way that Americans did. And you can just see it. Like now you can still see it. Um, He also had a system for how he would build the, the physical building. They would all be individually designed because... Different places did need different things, but they all had certain things in common. They would be dignified, classical, but not elaborate. They'd have really big windows in the front to let in all the light. You would walk in, there'd be a circulation desk and a reading room on the ground floor. There'd be a children's room above it, and then a quieter reading room on the third floor and farthest away from the street. And about a third of the libraries he built named the library after him. So it'd be the Pittsburgh Carnegie Library or something. But not that was not required. It was not... They just did it because, uh, you know, to honor him. Um, also, some requested a bust or a picture of Andrew Carnegie, but Bertram would always forward them to a store that sold them. <laughs> he wouldn't pay for it. He's like, nah. No. Well, he received criticism that some people said, oh, he just wants to do this so that he gets his names on all of these buildings. He's just trying to buy himself a legacy. And that was not it at no. all. It really was an ideal. And so I think he really did demure because he certainly he liked publicity but not for this no he he, he really, liked it when he was in business he liked the publicity but in his philanthropy he wanted to do it from actual altruism and goodness yeah there is rumors going around that he required buildings to be named after him and that is not the case i mean not not with the libraries maybe other things he did but he did not do that with this um in new york he built 67 All but 14 of those 67 branches are still operating as libraries. That's incredible. Today. I love that. I know. So, I mean, if you go to a branch library in New York City, he probably built it. By the end of his life, he had given away 1,419 libraries. Wow. So another thing that Carnegie got into was organ donation, which... We tend to think of as, you know, maybe you're an odd body part. For him, Andrew had a long and burning love for the pipe organ. He adored this instrument so much. I don't know whether it was like him, you know, just like the reverberation that it just, you know, it was larger than life. What what appealed to him? About the organ. I I think that it was a way to get classical music to the masses. Uh Uh-huh. So... Like you you don't need a whole stringed instrument to orchestra. Yes. Yeah. You can just play these things on the organ and it elevates the soul and it makes the person more human. And he he really believed that the arts elevated the human being. Amazing. Which you can see... He that is where he does get it right about the workers. <laughs> he doesn't get everything right about the workers. But what he right. does get right is he knows it is important for them to have access to beauty. Right. They're in these factories. They live in Pittsburgh. Everything is ugly. But they can go down the street now to the museum and see castings of famous sculptures from all over the world. He knows beauty elevates. And it's the same thing with music for him. 
I love the, the whole organ thing. It cracks me up. He actually said uh, when he was trying to get an organist for Skibo one summer, he was hiring a new one. And he writes to his secretary over in England and he says, we are particular about the music. No fancy pieces. These prostitute the organ. <laughs> the fine old hymns, Wagner's finest religious pieces, played slowly, feelingly. No bounce, he underlines. No oh, bounce, gosh. no flair. So he does not want the like Mariah Carey of organists no. to come to no. You know, I mean, standards. <laughs> right, right. Crack me up. Oh, gosh. Uh, let's see. So actually, going speaking of Skibo, he had the main building had been this kind of weird modern Gothic thing. They've really transformed it. The essence moving in, they have turned it into a castle. Just it's a twentieth century, two hundred bedrooms. I mean, it looks very what we think of as medieval. Well, yes, it's just idealized version of this grandeur that never really did exist. I mean, it can now because he has enough money to pour into it, but it's gorgeous. And it's not only just for himself. It's almost like a love letter to Scotland, like his best version. He decorates it with like, it's like an homage to the whole history of Skibo, all the previous tenants, including himself. He sees this as like a long line of like these dynasties. And he... Yeah, he he puts into the stained glass in front of all the doors. All the out- exterior doors have stained glass in them. And in the stained glass is the stories of all the lairds. Right. Or lords, I guess. Lairds. <laughs> um, of Skibo. Right. From Viking times on to him... He in the stained glass or those those stories are told. Yes, yes. And so I feel like everything about it wasn't so much about bragging about having the best of everything, but wanting to give Scotland the best of what he could give. You know, this is a gift to the village and, and to show everybody who came to visit how awesome Scotland was. And it was very comfortable, unlike old castles. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, you can start with uh, it had plumbing. It had plumbing. Was... That's a win. Right, right. I mean, they say modern right. plumbing, which must be old plumbing to us, but still quite modern. Right. It had electric lights. He had electrically lighted up the whole place, which was very remarkable. So remarkable that King Edward VII several years later, is restoring and and redoing Buckingham Palace. And he shows up at Skibo. Oh, yes. Unannounced. 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 Yes. Andrew was asleep. He was taking a nap. I have read that Andrew and Louise were taking a nap. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Even more interesting. Imagine. Well, they were (laughs) for sure in bed. And there's this telegram saying, the king is coming. He's making his way to the village. And they jump out of bed. Andrew looks out the window and there he is coming up the driveway. His right. motorcade is already coming up the driveway. Oh, and yes. I guess not motorcade. Well, so they have horses, to. Huh? Yes. <laughs> I, I don't. They need to get the bagpiper. The obligatory piper needs to be, you know, thrown into his kilt. Yep. So he he's rushing around to get his Highland gear on. Right, the, the organist. He's in the pool. He's in the pool. <laughs> He's in the pool, so he hops out and he's like dripping wet, changes into his clothes as fast as he can, so, and he gets to the organ in time to play God Save the King. Right. As the king walks in. It as... reminds me of the scene in um A Man for All Seasons when oh, King oh, Henry yes, shows yes, up with at, his 
with his ships. Up yeah, the and it's supposed to be all like it was a surprise, you know. Right. But it's not really in their case. This really is a surprise. He really does not know he's coming, and. The king is so impressed with the electricity that he, this is how he lights up Buckingham Palace is in the same manner. Oh, goodness. That's he also, while story. he's there, the king looks over and he's like, he sees um, a newspaper clipping of the Diplodocus Carnegie. Oh, yes. He goes, oh, yes, you have a dinosaur. I like dinosaurs. How interesting. I would like a dinosaur for the Natural History Museum in London. And that is like... Carnegie's like, yes, yes, I will do that. I will get it for you. I will get you this. And he orders it and he gets a plaster cast made and sent to oh. to England and is a gift to the king. Um, and it's just so funny to me because Andrew comes from such a long line of anti-monarchical, yes. you know, home rule and and what the Chartist tradition. This is all like we hate the monarchy. But I mean, the king says... I like Jump dinosaurs. Jump up and get me a dinosaur. And he's like, how high? How high? I'll get you the biggest dinosaur I can get you. Oh, gosh. So it just doesn't. His he's, He does love men with power. He does. And he loves. He gets man crushes. He does. <laughs> he does. He, re- he really respects that. And again, I feel like at this point of his life, he just wants to prove to everyone how great Scotland is. So if, you know, a self-made Scottish businessman is in a position to give a king a dinosaur, something he doesn't have, like, how great is that? That must have made him feel pretty proud of himself. Absolutely. Actually, now, Skibo, should you want to visit, you can. Oh, my God. But like everything else, it requires some buy-in. It's run now as a country club, like a private club. You have to buy in, I suppose you have to be approved to, it's something like 28,000 pounds, mm. a one-time fee, right? So if you have that I was going to kick around, myself because right, I right. was just in Scotland. <laughs> You're like, why didn't I stay there? No, this no. Why. <laughs> this is why. Yes. Then annually, it's like 8,000 pounds that you must pay in today money. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Then additionally, if you want to stay there, it's it's about like starts at about 12 to 1400 pounds a night. Wow. But that's all inclusive at that point. At that point, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. If, yes. I don't know if you can drink enough scotch to make up your uh, money here. Right. This is no like club sandals situation. It is <laughs> incredible. But then you they they have these amazing rooms. And so one of the bathrooms that he had built, interestingly, it has two bathtubs in the middle of it, like, right, huh. like next to each other, like his like and Like in Shanghai Noon? I, I would have to look. With Jackie Chan and, and never mind, go but ahead. Not familiar. To- Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Uno mas. Don't worry about it. <laughs> two bathtubs next to each other. So, and, you know, great big ceilings and windows and everything. So it's not like the, um, you know, when we, my husband's British, when we go to England, I, I never really come back saying I want a big British bathroom <laughs> or, oh my goodness, you know, and no. I don't know, I can't imagine that Scotland would be much better than that. But no, Carnegie had these like giant, you know, American style bathrooms and, and the toilets and the sinks are painted with garlands. And then the water, it was like a a private supply of water he had from his own estate. And it was like, it came through a peat bog. And so you had this like really nice brown water, like this healthy Scottish water. Can you imagine? You. Yes. (laughs) 
I know. So you can just sit there near his and hers bath and go, thanks so much. I imagine now the water is sparkling for that 28 whatever. Yeah, you would pounds. hope you'd have some good purification systems. Oh my goodness. Point. I would want a cup of diamonds. I right, can't. Right. I mean, Skibo's on 40,000 acres. Yes. And includes three locks. Well, it's those are the natural gorgeous. locks. Yes. There's at least two man-made locks, one named after Margaret, Lock Mar- Margaret Lock and Louise Lock. <laughs> nice. Um, it also butts right up against the North Sea, so you have ocean access. Yes. Now, the one place, if you haven't heard of Ski Boat through the Carnegies, you may have known years and years back, Madonna and Guy Ritchie got married there. So, so weird. Yeah, so fancy. That's so weird. Yeah. I, I don't know if Andrew would have approved. <laughs> I don't think Louise would have approved. Right. Probably. Right. But um, in fact, Louise, I don't want to skip ahead to this too much, but, you know, she is not even left enough money after Andrew dies. Not he does not. She's not destitute or anything, but um, they have to sell Skibo pretty much Eventually right away. Eventually they do. Yeah. There was some time where they tried to limp along with Skibo, but okay. it's just to maintain it in the way it, it ought to be maintained is oh, just it, beyond a normal kind of budget. He also gets really into yachting. So he's always on his yacht oh, boy. in Skibo at this point. He's forever fishing and yachting and, you know, he'll host big hunts. He'll do all of those things in a single day, too. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. He just It's not like today I'll fish and tomorrow I'll yacht. No, he would do all the things. And in addition to the fishing and the hunting and the yachting, he would also, he's still writing his anti-imperialist campaign letters and articles. And he's just very much still into this. He's given up about the Philippines, that particular thing. But he's right. moved on to the Boer War in South Africa. Now like now he's anti-imperialist in Britain as well as in America. Right. Um right. and he's getting more and more obsessive. So, in the United States in the fall, McKinley is assassinated and Roosevelt ascends to the American presidency. Before he was the president, Carnegie in a letter had actually called him a dangerous man. But hmm. once he's president, Suddenly, Andrew, well, Andrew just knows he's always he's always about the man with the power. So he immediately starts befriending him. And um, Roosevelt welcomes him like a long lost friend because <laughs> Roosevelt's just... always looking for money, frankly. And they're really very similar and probably in a different scenario. They would be really good friends because they're both just Full of optimism and I progress. I'm just imagining those two walking and talking and everyone kind of struggling after them to yes. try to just keep up with notes. and Exactly. Yeah. They're incredible. They're both very ambitious. Oh, gosh. Um, They're both full of unboundless energy, really. they You can't get more energetic. Well, these are people who just wake up every day and think they can like rule the world. You and know, they do. Like, just, and then they do it. <laughs> like just get up and call, you know, I'm thinking, well, kid, should I make the coffee or not? Like, can I, can I achieve world peace today? It's, yes, it's, absolutely. They operate on different levels. Uh, this level of like optimism and confidence in their abilities. And it's proven. I mean, they're, they're getting places and doing things. Yeah. I am 
Humbled. Yeah, sometimes if you just believe in yourself enough. That um, must be it. <laughs> I, I have a few people in my life like that where I'm like, well, that is a terrible idea, but it keeps working out for them. They right. just keep, they just, it's like their very optimism just carries them through. Like yes. really some very bad ideas. So maybe that's the key to success. I don't know. Um, yeah. The reason, though, Carnegie wants to befriend, in particular, the reason he wants to befriend Roosevelt right away is he has a new dream. He wants to start the Carnegie Science Institute in Washington, which was the weirdest thing, because right before we recorded this, I was in D.C. visiting my in-laws, and their retirement home is next door to the Carnegie Science Institute. And I saw it. Yeah. You can't get away from him. (laughs) I couldn't. I was trying to have a break. And no, uh uh-uh, he followed me. I was very excited, though, because... And I love it. It's still there. It's still there. So he wants to do the the thing that he wants to do is different than what anyone else is doing. And it was sort of vague. And it was this weird idea that he thought it would be sort of like a university and that there would be lots of research done there, but they wouldn't teach and they wouldn't grant degrees. So more or less what we, we know as a research center, but all of the research up to this point was done in the context of universities. So this is a foreign thing to kind of take out the research part from the university and then just do that. And I love what he said about it was to discover the exceptional man in every department of study wherever and where and where found and enable him to make the work for which he seems specially designed for his life work. Wow. So he just wanted to give money to people who really had expertise and passion in one area where they they wouldn't have a grant otherwise. There would be no way for them to carry on their work without some kind of money. So he didn't want it to be medical because that was already happening. He wanted this to be pure science. So for example, the first person to receive money was George Ellery Haley of Haley's Comet. Uh And he built an observatory with the money. What do you know? <laughs> the next person is Edward Edwin Hubble. Oh, again, another again. one we know. Mm-hmm. Good job, Barbara Andrew. McClintock with the genetic makeup of corn. Um, she won a Nobel Peace Prize for that, and Goodness. that was from the Carnegie Institute money. Well, it's interesting because you can see his experience in business of just like streamlining, of just getting the direct talent in the same way that he kind of bought the coke fields and did this he would always cut out the middlemen and say let's yeah. just get right to the result and i feel like he's doing this here with you know intellectual progress right he thinks why why bog everything down let's just get right to the ideas that's right right it's, it's this is very much this is probably his most creative contribution because people weren't doing pure research at this point it wasn't probably kind sitting of this- there soaking in that peat water and his yeah. giant bathtub thinking, you know, like, how am I going to change the world today? That's right. That's exactly it. So in contrast to Skibo, they're building another new mansion in New York City. But it's interesting because in in the old world, they have room and respect for grandeur, but not so in the new world. So even this new mansion is very understated intentionally. Instead of being marble, like all of the other big mansions on Fifth Avenue that were owned by also big new money. Instead of being marble, it was just this red brick, kind of a homey red brick. It had a yellow brick path 
leading huh. up to the house. <laughs> Yellow brick very, road. Yeah, I know. Yes. Weird, right? It's in very cheerful. It was a very cheerful kind of place. <laughs> and there was like almost no privacy because you just had this iron, wrought iron fence around it. So can you imagine? No. Like the security issues oh you would gosh. think of these days. I And he would just hang out in his garden and Louise would pick flowers and right. they had a little mini ski boat styled garden but <sighs> tiny you know like new york sized right um and they would just hang out reading books in the garden and, and he things. could go for walks every day in central park and i'm uh, i assume no one no one bothered him well actually he would often take so he would take a two mile walk every day like four at 4 p.m so it's not like he was sneaking systematic around. walk very yes. systematic <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of times reporters would follow him and and talk to him and he didn't mind it because he's yeah, such a social guy. He's like, OK, cool. You know, yeah. What do you can join me this? with my exercise? Oh, nice. Yeah. He just lived as kind of a normal New Yorker. OK, this is a weird one. It's super weird. Uh, he really gets obsessed with simplified spelling. OK, explain to me what is simplified spelling, because I might need to know this. So instead of the the word telephone instead of using a ph you would use an f because not right. uh, why Cut on out earth the middleman get right. right to the f sound why on earth do we have two ways to make the f sound diphthongs are a thing of the past that's right no silent e's obviously. of course not get rid of them yeah so in, okay. in in his mind he's like oh well we can if we all simplify our spelling and we get rid of the differences between British spelling and American spelling, we'll all be more unified. So this is ah, another one of his... It's like Esperanto or something. It is. Spelling. It is. And it's it, it for him, is again, another path, step on the path to evolution. Another bathtub idea, undoubtedly. It is. So some work out better than others. And right. this I is wonder what... Luis is like, oh, yes, Andrew. Like, that's a... Well, he yeah, was yeah. so... He aggravated Did everybody he around him. It, like, he only... In his letters? After 1906, he would only use simplified spelling. So he all... just invented his system. He's like, the, I'm just well, there I'm is, doing no, it. No, he I'm wasn't in. the only person. There were okay. other people doing this. I've heard of this before, actually. So people got on board. Well, yeah, there were a few people very on board and who really were going to, you know, change the world to yeah, simplified yeah, spelling. Yeah. And and so there was like a small, very vocal group of them. And uh, but he might be the only one who insisted on actually using it in his personal correspondence. So he's <laughs> I love that. And he donates this money to them. Um, but it, they're not getting anywhere with it. And, you know, he he will give people money, but they need to make good use of it. If they don't, they're out. They don't get right. any if more money from him. Yeah. If you insist on this pH business, you're, yeah. you're so out. So he's, you know, he's all behind the idea. He gives them, I think, $10,000. Um, and they don't really make good use of it, he thinks. So he writes them a letter and he says, they've requested more money. And he writes them a letter. I would love to see this letter written in Simplified Spelling. Exactly. My favorite is how, you know, he says, no, I'm not going to give you any any more money for this you haven't made enough progress enough is enough e n u f uh, <laughs> enough is enough oh my gosh. Oh, gosh such a bad idea i mean it's a good idea as a person who teaches other people how to read occasionally right. yes. it's a great idea cause... but it is awkward because you have to relearn a whole new system and you have to get everyone who oh, speaks english no. everywhere on board i feel like it caused more luck. division than this whole unity thing he was hoping for yeah mm-hmm the other thing he he another charity he's giving to at this point and he starts, which is another kind of creative use of the money, is the Hero Fund. Um, so this was intentionally 
a non-military hero fund. He wanted a non-police, you know, he didn't want, he said, it's a shame that everybody who is a hero is a man who has killed the most other men. Ah. So not that he didn't admire certain soldiers, but he, he just felt thought, like the other kinds of heroes were being overlooked. Yeah. That if we glorify one kind he in his mind, I mean, that's right. So, you know, it would be, um, you know, I think one of the first heroes who got an award is a monetary award plus, you know, a plaque or whatever. Um, but they get money and they get a ceremony and a banquet and all that. The One of the first ones was a young teenage boy who risked his own life by saving two friends who, you know, went over in a canoe uh -huh. and he jumped back in to save them. And so the money could either go to the hero if he survived, but a lot of times it would go to the surviving family members. Interesting. This fund still exists. A total of 10,062 Carnegie medals have been awarded since the fund was established, with the fund paying $40.5 million in different benefits. Wow. Yep. So pretty cool. They, they, that's, yeah, still, yeah. that's still a, a thing that exists. Even with all of this generosity and such a focus on giving the money away, he is still a very wealthy man. So we will continue next time to see what becomes of Andrew Carnegie's money. Thank you for joining us. Evan Cresta, thank you for editing and mixing this episode. Please join us on our Facebook group or at onceuponalifetimepodcast.com.